Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Checkfront, the booking platform trusted by over 5,000 tour and activity operators around the world. You can start your own free 21-day trial over at Checkfront.com. Welcome to the Tourpreneur Podcast. Travel industry veteran Shane Whaley will take you on a journey with fellow tourpreneurs, sharing their tips, ideas, insights, and success stories to inspire you to make your tour business the best it can be. And now, here is your host, Shane Whaley. Hello and welcome to episode 63 of the Tourpreneur podcast. Now, if you're at Arrival Berlin this week, you might be scratching your head thinking, whoa, how's he getting these podcasts out so quickly? I just had breakfast with him or a coffee with him or more likely a whiskey last night. The magic of podcasting. I'm recording this a couple of weeks in advance because I know I'm going to be busy at Arrival. Now, today's guest, Sean Finelli, blown away by this story, right? Because Sean is, um, he was working on Wall Street. He was an analyst. One day, he had enough, packed his bags, went to Europe, set up camp in Rome because he has Italian heritage, I think on his grandparents' side, Finelli, right? Um, he started working, promoting bars and, and restaurants that he found himself selling tours outside the Colosseum on the streets. And being an ex-analyst, he realized how much money he was handing over to his bosses. And he thought, wow, why can't I become a tourpreneur? Why can't I set up my own tour operator business. So he did, and he called it the Roman guy. And this is the story of how he built his business from the Roman guy right up to the tour guy. Now, the interesting thing about his hustle, if you will, is for, he shares with us that for a few nights he was living rough at a railway station in Rome. He talks about how he's competing in probably one of the toughest competitive markets for tours and activities, which is Rome. If any of you have been to Rome, you just get hammered by, you know, tours for Colosseum, tours for Vatican, etc. So he was sharing with us how he felt that skip the line should be standard and how he offers exclusive access to certain areas of the Vatican and the Colosseum. And that's how he's standing out in his market. We talk about some of the red tape issues he had, some of the legal issues setting up. And what really resonated with me, a couple of things really, but there was a, a something he did, an act of generosity where he basically bailed out a, uh, a fellow tour guide competing company that was in some trouble with tickets. He went out, sold those tickets for it. What he didn't know was that tour guide is a friend or connected to Rick Steves. And when Rick Steves' guidebook came out, he got a mention and his business went through the roof. Absolutely blown away because the act of generosity that Sean displayed was for no return. He didn't know this person. You know, He wasn't trying to 
um, you know, get anything out of that. He just wanted to help out someone who was distressed. So I think there's a lesson for all of us there. And I think we see this a lot in the tours and activity industry. He also shares with us why adversity is a good thing, as well as how he feels about Get You Got Originals, because Get You Got Originals set up camp. If not the first very early Get You Got Original was Rome. He talks through why he agrees with their decision if he was in their shoes, but you know how it affects his business and how his relationship has been with Get Your Guide. And he shares some great books with us that he he basically cites as being instrumental in being a successful tourpreneur. And here's the thing. Sean is actually dyslexic. So he shares with us how dyslexia, see, I can't even say it. Dyslexia has supercharged him in terms of wanting to, to succeed and how it's helped him he feels work harder than, than many other people. So you're in for an absolute treat today. Honestly, this is one of those interviews that just flew by. I'd love Sean to come back on. He's got so much knowledge that can help all of us. Uh, I hope you enjoy the show. And please, if you enjoy it, if you can just share it with one other person, a peer, a friend, um, someone in your network, I would really appreciate it. Anyway, let's cross over to Sean Finelli of the tourguy.com. <laughs> Welcome to episode 63 of Torpreneur. Sean Finelli, how are you? I'm great, man. I'm great. Just uh, had, had a good morning this morning, and I'm excited to get on the phone with you. Well, you've got a phenomenal story. I was looking at uh, your about page, and I'm going through this podcast uh, exercise with a coach right now, and he says, you have to be able to define your podcast in 10 words without using buzzwords. And I look at your about page, and it's like, a Wall Street guy fell deeply in love, the tour guy was born. And I think that's phenomenal because you've kind of got in a nutshell your story. But I want to dig into that a little bit more. So you started off life on Wall Street, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't like a, uh, you know, Wolf Wall Street type or like a big shot. So in school, I studied finance and economics and I found I was pretty good with numbers early on. Uh, so I got into like quantitative analysis and I started, I just got a job at a bank basically. And I did uh, quantitative analysis for them. And I really liked it. It was really enjoyable for some time. I did it while I was in school. So I took like six years to finish school and uh, but worked for like three years full time during that. Well, I have a very good friend of mine. She works for one of the big banks, we say. I'm not going to name it on Wall Street. And uh, she serves as a mentor to me with Tourpreneur. And I have a little bit of an understanding now, even as you say low level, but how much pressure there is on you guys. And, and like, I, I couldn't do it. I got to be honest, the stories I hear, I'm like, that's a tough gig. You know, my boss would say, guys like me, uh, we're mushrooms. You keep them in the dark and feed them shit. (laughs) Great. So talk me through how you got from Wall Street then to Rome, Italy. One of my like personal deepest values is to just live a really interesting, cool life that allows me to produce tons of memories. And I find the most, most interesting memories and the most memorable memories are the ones that happen on vacation. You know, like I remember standing in front of the Grand Canyon you never forget that for the first time, whale watching my dad when I was a child. You know, the vacations you take to the beach all the time with your parents, they end up blending together. But when you travel to new places, you just remember them. Like if you go to Marrakesh, you will remember that, that feeling you got when you went to the market or sit at the airport, whatever it is. So when I was in school, I, I would I would talk my bosses into letting me, you know, travel to Europe for the summer. And I would get jobs like, you know, promoting for bars or whatever it was. And I would I would stay there for like two months during my breaks at school, I wouldn't work at the banks and I would, I would go to Europe. I just accrued so many memories during that time period. I, I just, so many things, cool things that happened that I, i still take with me today. And you know, when you like meet up with friends and they're like, do you remember that time? And you're like, oh man, 
that's what happened. And I thought about it when I was graduating university and I got this like job offer. It was a great job offer, like Mm -hmm. really, really good job offer. And I was thinking about my, my personal value and goal to just accrue memories. And I was comparing the memories I got with travel with the memories that I've gotten on wall street. And I honestly can remember about two or three moments working at a bank. You know, it was just a drag. You're just working to get to Friday to hang out on the weekend and your life's kind of burning through. And I thought about the offer and how much money they were willing to pay me. And I was like, if these guys are willing to pay me this much money, how much money can I make on my own? You know, how can I achieve financial independence faster on my own? And I thought about that and I thought, well, I just want to accrue more memories. I decided to move to Europe and uh, try to find a job and thought that at one point it would work out. If, if these guys are willing to pay me so much for my skill set, using that skill set in another area, at one point it would work out. And that's, uh, that's how I got into it. And why Italy? You know, I'm from New Jersey. So I'm like one of those like American Italians, you know, who eat mozzarella and this kind of stuff. And I've always been like super proud of that. But I felt like I was kind of cheating because I wasn't actually Italian. Like I had an Italian citizenship coming in the books from my, uh, my grandparents, but I couldn't speak the language, all this kind of stuff. I felt like a faker. So when I traveled my brother to Europe at like 19 years old, probably the, the first real trip he took, uh, when I got to Italy, I was just like, this is it. You know, and it's probably not unique to me. Everyone gets to Italy and they're like, this is it. I got a job when I was traveling my brother for a day and I was promoting for this, this bars, you know, like the normal college job when you're in Europe. It was the only job I found while I was traveling and I was not looking for a job. So the next summer I decided to go back there and I went back to, to Rome and did the same job. And then I went back the summer after that and found kind of like other niche jobs you could do. I really liked it there and I felt, you know, almost at home and I wanted to learn the language. So I decided I would go out there, but I, I wasn't planning on living there for 10 years. Like I did I was planning to live there for maybe a year or two. And then how did you go from promoting bars to working in tours? Well, I have like a very contrarian point of view on things. When I walk into a store, some people are like, wow, this store smells nice. Or wow, there's some cool products on the wall. I look around and I look at the average purchase price of products. I look at how many people walk through that door while I'm there and I start calculating. And that's just how my mind works. So I see, and I'm thinking about like how many people have to work at that store, how big, how much the rent might be. And all these things, I just start calculating, thinking about how much profit that store can possibly make and how many stores you need to make in order to make a living or, or sort of company. I've been this way for as long as I can remember. And when I got to Rome, I just started looking around and I saw the people and I thought, man, there is a lot of opportunity here because the, 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 it's not like here where you walk to Walgreens and you're like, Walgreens has this, this down pat. Like they know what to do. Like you walk into Walgreens or you know Whole Foods, and you're like, these guys got this covered. You know, I'm not moving into the grocery store market because these guys are good. I went to Rome, and it was so disorganized, and there were so many complaints about how things ran. And I thought, there's opportunity here for me to do a really good thing, which is tourism and travel and explanation of history, and also make income. So one day I rocked up to the Colosseum, and I saw all these people selling tours, and I saw the line, and I saw everything, and I was just like, this is it. So I started selling tours on the street in front of the Coliseum, and it was pretty good for the time. You know, I made enough money to survive, and it was uh, it led me to just speak to a lot of people. So I started just communicating with the people on the street. I mean, I try to calculate in my head, but it's it, up to like a thousand people a day I probably spoke to because you're wow. standing there being like, yeah, you're standing there being like, hey, you want to go inside the Coliseum? And someone puts their hand in your face, you know, and then someone else says, yeah, I do, and then someone else, you know, whatever or not, and you just continue to talk and, and sell people, you know, tours and activities. And I just got so much information for people. I, they'd be like, no, I don't want to go to the Coliseum. I'd be like, okay, what do you want to do? And they'd be like, well, I want to go in the Vatican. I'd be like, I can sell you that too. 
And then they'd be like, well, I want to go to Florence. And I'd be like, I can help you arrange that. You know, it just was like so much market research there. And I wasn't planning anything because I'm not a great planner. It just kind of happened. It was like a, a vacuum of people that wanted something to be more organized. And I was an organized person and I put it together, if that makes sense. I'm not the only one. There's a couple other very successful people in my same like class, I will call it, that are doing very similar things. And we all lived together and knew each other when it was happening. So like the major tour companies coming out of Italy right now, we were all in the same circle, all doing the same exact thing. And that's and now today we're all online. So back in the early days, then when you were selling the tours, you were working on behalf of somebody, right? That, that wasn't your own tour? Yes. I worked for a lot of licensed guys and they were all just like out of their minds, but it was so fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I admire you just walking past the Empire State Building, which I used to do daily. I mean, those guys selling the big bus and city sightseeing and and if you think about, I, I know those guys are going to kill me because I've said this once before on the show, but I don't see a brand difference between the two. So it's not like, oh yeah, I've got a big bus. It's like, what's coming first? You're buying the person. You're Absolutely. buying the person. And it's just like you'd walk by those guys, you'd be like, I live here, get out of my way. I was that guy on the street. You know, I was I was just selling and bugging people and pestering them. And, you know, it was it really makes your 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 confidence like it puts it to the test. You know, so if you can do that and sell on the street, you can just do anything. You know, it really makes it so you just, you can climb a mountain if you want to. And everything looks easy once you, you can approach someone on the street and be like, hey, can I take some money for you, please? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, that's, uh, yeah, I can see how you learned a lot by doing that. And I think a lot of tourpreneurs should also do something similar as get out on the street and like you say, talk to people. People hide behind their computers and hide behind their product and hire market research companies. And it's like, if you don't know, Every aspect of your business, if you don't communicate with your customers, if you're afraid to do that, you are making a massive mistake. Like I try to get on the phone with as many customers as I can. I mean, obviously I don't pick up the phone all day because I, I have to run the company and do all kinds of crazy compliance type things. But as, as much as I, as I possibly can, I'm on the phone with the customers or listening to calls or just communicating with people. And in the beginning, I was on the phone with all the customers. And it's so incredibly important because it really teaches you and humanizes you and allows you to understand your product and how it makes people react and helps you better as you market. So talk us through then. So you're working for someone else, you're doing okay. I read somewhere that, and I'm not sure which stage of your career this came, that you were sleeping at a train station at one point. Yes. Also one of my proudest moments of my life. All the low moments are the ones I like value the most because they I just I've taken them with me so far. Yeah, for, for a moment I was homeless. Now I won't try to say I was like poor. I didn't have a rough upbringing. You know, my dad, like we had our, our utilities turned off at times, but it wasn't like he was starting a business and that's just what happened. We, we never were like, there's so many people that have it so much worse than me. So I will not come out and say like I had an incredibly hard upbringing. I was very fortunate to, to, to have what I had. That said, when I moved to Rome, I got completely, uh, you know, screwed or whatever you want to say out of my money. I, so I was living with a friend who actually is one of my competitors and I wanted to move to this area uh, named Trastevere, which is like my, was always my favorite area. I was really young. It's like Bohemian, like East Village. And I, I went to rent this apartment. So when I went to do it, I, I showed up, the guy showed me the apartment. I was like, this is great. And he's like, oh, he paid me a deposit. And I was like, okay, cool. So I gave him the month's rent and then a deposit one month, which was all the cash I had. I, I brought like, I, you know, I was just getting out of college. I didn't have a lot of money and I brought like $1,500 and it quitted like 1,200 euros at the time. And the, the, the deposit was like 400, 400. So it was like pretty much all the money I had. So then like a week later I was moving in and I had like probably 20 or 30 euros left at this point. I went to show up in the day to move in and I knocked on the door and this lady answered the door and I was like, Hey, it's me, Sean. 
And she's like, who? And I was like, I'm, I'm here to live in the apartment. And she was like, what? Oh, no. I was like, I met like Giovanni, you know, he took my money. And she was like, sorry. And just closed the door. So at this point, I had to call my mom and ask her to send me money. Mm-hmm. Through, and there was no Venmo at this time. This is like, you know, yeah. 12 yeah. years ago, whatever it is, 15 years ago. So she had a Western Union money, which wasn't exactly one day the next. I mean, when I called her, the banks were closed in the United States. She had to go the next day. And then by the time she got it out, I didn't tell her I was homeless. I was a little bit embarrassed about that. Like no one in my family even knows about that really at this point, for like me and my wife. But, you know, so the money didn't get there for two nights. So I spent two nights outside. I didn't want to go back to my friend because I was too proud. I didn't want to tell anyone. I mean, there's so many in Rome that I, I recently told those two and they were like, what? When? When did that happen? I just, but I, I spent like two nights outside uh, sleeping on my gear. You know, I had like one big parachute bag and I just, uh, yeah, it sucked. You know, and, I, and now I have like a huge appreciation for homeless people. Yes. You know, just because of that, especially homeless people that stay positive. You know, it's so like we live in Philly now. I just try to give whatever I can to them. Like in the winter time, we, we I buy like um, long johns and stuff like that for the guys around my office, stuff like that, and try to keep everyone warm. But it's like after you do that and you sleep on the street and you don't have a home, you're like, hold, you don't know how bad that sucks unless you do it. So, and that's why I was delighted to have Zakia Malawi on the show a couple of weeks ago from Invisible Cities. You know the work they're doing there. You know training homeless people up to become tour guides and give them a living. I mean, it's just. Just absolutely phenomenal. And also, you know, human kindness as well. We're going off track a little bit, but I read a story last week. Wales were playing, I think, Ireland in the rugby, uh, you know, massive game. And this guy had a spare ticket and he gave it to a homeless guy awesome. on the street, took him in the stadium, bought him beers. And you just think, wow, you know, that, that poor guy is having a rough time and someone's generosity. And the guy was, you know, he didn't do it for publicity. He just wanted to help someone out. And you know, it's always very moving. So I, I love Zakia's work and I agree with you. I think many of us have, you know, rushes with homelessness and we don't talk about it. I certainly did in my 20s, very similar story to you. I, I don't think many of my friends know about it because I was too proud, et cetera. It's like, if you, don't, if you don't come from a rough background, why do you want to tell anyone? You know yeah. what I mean? You want to kind of just pretend, like when you're young and you don't have any money, you want to pretend like you do. And then exactly. like when you become successful, you're kind of like, well, I didn't have any money back then, you know, and I, it sucks. And then you tell people. I agree. So you're, you're selling tours for this licensed tour company. At what point did you decide, hey, you know what? I could do this for myself. Why am I working for someone else? So you just like, you could just see that these guys were raking in. And the business we were doing, it was all cash. And it was just like, you know, it just was very obvious. I mean, I was little, obviously being a quant, I was the guy that walked around with the money and, and did this cashier for him. You know what I mean? And you could just see, I saw how much I did his payroll for him. I paid me and the rest of the people and then I paid him. And yeah. I was just like, this is the job. They, they were doing really well. And I was like, I didn't want to sell tours in the street because it builds up your confidence. But at the same time, like you got to call your mom every day and have her say beautiful things to you because everyone during the day does not say beautiful things to you. And it was really fun, obviously too, but I wanted to get out of that. And I really loved history. Like if I go somewhere, I, I want to learn everything about that place, everything, you know? So when I got there, I was like really interested in the Coliseum, the Vatican, all the sites. And I wanted to learn that. And then I wanted to explain it to other people because I wanted them to learn it too. It was less monetarily charged. Like obviously I have to survive. And more that I just really want people to learn. And I, I'm focused on learning. So I thought, well, if I could accomplish, like Wall Street obviously was bad. You know, what we did and what, what I was helping people do and the, the job offer I got was they wanted me to do something that I didn't think it was good. I didn't find a lot of value in that. But making money off tourism, I think is good because it's just like a win-win. Like I win and people win. So I saw the opportunity there and I said, okay, I just printed a business card and I started to kind of hand out my business card 
these tour guides didn't care as much because they weren't trying to sell additional products later. They were more just trying to sell their tour at the Coliseum. And they did have other products they could sell. And I did sell those products for them. You know what I mean? But I also dredged up my own business on the side, which is pretty normal and common. You know, I expect other people to do it too. Uh, and then it kind of grew and, you know, I just continued to move forward and it was great. It, there was, there was one changing point where I was getting tours where I, um, I got listed in the Rick Steves guidebook and, uh, I talked to Rick like once a year, twice a year and just thank him, you know, because it was just a complete like catalyst, you know, we'd had a hockey stick. I was doing no money, had a few good clients that came in through the year. And then I got in the Rick Steves book and it just came flooding in. Now I want to share if we can with our listeners, because that didn't happen by accident. This happened by karma. Tell us about a lady called Francesca Caruso. I have this strange perspective on life. Well, it's not strange, but it's just very, I don't know, me. I want to make money, but I want to be really honest doing that. So I think that if you are making money, like everyone looks at people to make money as a bad thing, but I look at it as like, if you're super honest about it and what you're doing, I don't see any bad thing in it. I think it's very good and it's okay. So I I never really, I I try not to have like a charged motive motive. So I I, I meet all these other tour guys all the time and I want to like listen to them, see what they're doing. And I'd ask them like, Hey, can I listen to you and see what you're doing? Cause I think you're really good. And they'd be like, yes or no. And Francesca was one of those like, yeah. And I was always really nice to her. So one day, um, and this is actually before I asked her to listen in her tours. Uh, one day she was just walking by and I was standing at the Coliseum and it was like 8 a.m. I was working for this really great tour guide named Max. He's awesome archaeologist. I loved working for him. And But he'd have everyone come in super early and I was like 26 this time. So I would go out drinking every night. And I showed up and I was, I remember the hangover was horrible. And I was sitting there leaning on like the fence by the Coliseum waiting for people to show up so I could sell them tours. And Francesca just came up with her group. And they were, it was so awkward because it was like almost like I was included in her group. She was standing right in front of me and I'm all hungover, like just looking like a terrible person. And they're talking and I overhear the conversation because they're, they're right in front of me. And she's like, here's your tickets. And they're like, oh, we bought the Roma pass. And she was like, oh, and it was like four tickets, which is like 50 euros, which is a lot of money. You know what I mean? Like you don't want to lose 50 euros. So she's like, oh, well, you know, I'll try to sell them inside, which was complete BS because you could not sell them inside back to the call scene. They'd be like, yeah, get out of here. You know what I mean? There was no way she could sell them inside. And I knew that. So I just said to her in Italian, I was like, hey, why don't you just give me your ticket and I'll sell it for you. And she was like, okay. And I was, she gave me a ticket and then she left and I sold the ticket because we were selling tours anyway. So I could just get rid of it for her. No problem. It was going to be completely easy. I sold her ticket. She came back around. I gave her 50 euros. She's like, oh, here's the two euros back. I'm like, no, let's get a coffee. You know, so she went and got a coffee. And then like a couple months later, and I've been giving tours this time. I've been like really promoting myself. And a couple a couple months later, she was like, "Hey, I heard from Rick Steves that they're they're considering your you as one of the guides." And I told him that you were a great person and that they should check you out. And she was like the number one recommended guy in their book. And she was kind of always batting for me at that point because obviously she saw me do something for no personal benefit for myself. And uh, I just think karma came around back for me. And I've always been really thankful for her helping me out and for Rick Steves, obviously, for bringing me there too. It, it's interesting because you know with your background on Wall Street and that being quite a tough competitive industry and you know in tours and activities and it's even different from hotels which i spent a lot of my uh, career at there is so much generosity within tours and activities where the majority of tour entrepreneurs do want to help each other out and i always remember the story of john Levine, who runs bulldog tours in uh, in carolina you know he stepped in there was a ghost tour company uh in Charleston and the guy had a serious road accident. He said, look, I'll take over your business for you. You go recover. And you know, I'm not doing this to make any money or screw you over or whatever. And when Mike was fully fit, he gave him everything back. And I thought, wow, you know, you don't, you don't see that in many industries, right? I mean, I think it's 
tours and activities is one of the few where we do have a lot of generous spirits, I think. Well, we're really lucky because we live in an industry where that doesn't hurt anyone. You know, like, you know, like we need fossil fuels right now to be a community and a, in humanity. But like every time you mine coal or, or drill for oil, you know that something is getting hurt in return. Yeah. Yeah. You know, with tourism, we're just so lucky because it's just, it's so fulfilling and uplifting for other people to go on tours and see new cultures. And then like, once you get people from the, the culture that's arriving, colliding with the people that live in that culture, you just see this awesome thing happening and it opens up doors and it's like the tourism market is booming now. And then also at the same time, people are being more open with each other. You know, I don't want to be like lofty or, or dreamer, but I think maybe the the fact that people are getting out more and the market for travel is getting larger they're seeing other culture, witnessing our culture. I think people are coming more open and it's, it's really cool what's happening. But I actually had a, real, a similar situation to Bulldog on the reverse. Someone helped me. Rome is a very strange market and there's a lot of people there that maybe don't want good for other people. And if you're doing something that's different in Italy, it can come back to haunt you at some point. So I don't know. I can't like say for sure what happened, but I had a, um, a run-in with some individuals in an alley one, one evening and I went to the hospital. I broke my jaw in two places. It was pretty bad. And I remember I was on the bed, like bleeding. You know, I even went to a hospital and got kicked out somehow. It was just like such a, a messed up Whoa. foreign situation. It was really, really crazy. I, I slept it off, like blooding. My, my teeth were separated. It was all messed up. And then went to another hospital the next day. Luckily, a friend helped me out. But I was on the bed, like the stretcher going into the, the hospital. And I remember I had some tours the next day. And I called a friend and told him what happened. And he did the tours for me and like did it for free. He knew I was like kind of struggling at the time and it was just like awesome. You know what I mean? It's just really awesome how people help each other out. And I can't really speak for other industries, but I know like if you're in a big business and not like in tourism, it's really easy to kind of watch people crumble below you and elevate yourself. Whereas in tourism, it's like, it's just the market's growing so much. You don't feel that same pressure. Yeah, I agree. So share us, uh, with us a little bit about the barriers. So you start, you decided to go it alone, become a tourpreneur yourself, set up shop, what were some of the barriers that you experienced in Rome setting up a tour operating company? The language barrier is first and foremost. I had to learn Italian in order to get into the industry because obviously you can sell tours in English and you can communicate with English persons. But if you're running a business in a foreign country, you have to have a business there. You have to be able to communicate with people in that business. So learning Italian was most important, which took me a couple of years to do. And I, I really didn't wasn't able to establish anything legitimately until I could learn that language and, and navigate the system, which I did. Um, otherwise. I feel like it's a really accepting market. It just, I think the biggest barrier was waiting for e-commerce to kind of catch up with where we were. You know, when we first started in 2008, 2009, Google was really just kind of coming into its own and under, like the, the algorithms were changing, SEO was changing. There's so many different things that were happening. We had to wait for Google to start understanding that the, the best content and product was the ones that should be first and not the people that had the best SEO strategy. So that took a while, to be honest. We didn't really hit it until 2017, maybe, you know. And uh, and when that happened, it really was a, a hockey stick situation where we just jumped up and became from a very small business to a decent sized business. Sure, I, I definitely want to get into the digital side of things here, but I also want to ask you. I read somewhere that you launched some kind of was it a scooter tour or something, uh, some kind golf of electric car. vehicle? Golf golf yeah, that's, that's a great point. Thanks for doing the research. Uh, you know, sometimes you forget things. Yeah. That was huge. That was like, I, I still talk to my business partner every day and I'm like, hey, can we get the golf cart tour back? This thing sold like hotcakes. It was the best everything. It was the best service for customers. 
It was the best tour, the best price, the best everything. Tour guides loved it. It was amazing. And it was an electric vehicle too. So there was no emissions whatsoever. It was fantastic. It was like a win-win situation. The problem was, is that you're kind of in a different country where there is red tape. And I guess, you know, people don't like to see anyone coming in to innovate. You know, that's something that you'll get. And if you're in Silicon Valley, people are used to it at this point. So if you're not innovating, you're probably innovating in Silicon Valley. If you're in New York City, people are used to it too. But eventually people come knocking and we were doing this tour and we were all over the city and I love branding. So I smacked my name, my company on the side of the golf cart and had a big flashing light on the top and everything, you know, and we just went around the city and we promoted the tour and, you know, we sold out every single day. It was wow. fantastic. And then the taxi drivers got involved and they, uh, they wanted us to close down. They thought we were doing an illegal taxi service or they just thought that possibly people that wanted to buy a tour would buy a taxi ride around the city instead, you know? Whatever it was, they were just kind of jealous of what we were doing and thought we were being too flashy, which we were. And uh, eventually, we started getting pulled over. And the cops basically told us, so they said, like, listen, what you're doing is illegal. And we're like, no, it's not. We have a lawyer. You know, we have a license to this. We have a license to that. And this is okay, too. And they're like, that may be the truth. But you have to tell a judge to do it before you're allowed to do it again. And we're like, okay, when we can do that? And they were like, probably two to three years. Wow. Now. So yeah, so our court date was like two to three years later. And by the time it came up, we were just kind of like done with it. You know, it's just annoying. Uh, we still talk about it. We might start running these again in Florence uh, because Florence is open to it. We, we basically hired a lobbyist and we've been pitching the, the, the mayor of Rome, which changes every six months in that, in that city, uh, to try to try to get back in. But we're just like a low priority thing. And I guess no one really is interested in that kind of like green PR. So yeah, sure. never happened. But that was, I, I think about that tour literally once a month. I'm like, I wish we'd get the golf cart tour back. It was the best. Yeah, yeah. So when I think of Rome and tours and activities, particularly anything around Colosseum and Vatican, you know, there is huge competition. So how did you differentiate your tours from everything else on the market? Well, so I'm a very pragmatic person. So I thought that if we made the process, I looked at the friction points from people go to Rome. And a lot of the, the friction is around just like things being available and getting things the way they want them. So you go somewhere like, I want to do this. And they're like, the, the locals are in this culture where you tell people they can't do something. And the Americans coming are used to being like, no, 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 no. I can do anything. You know, and, and that's like, you know, can be a really good mentality. And also there's probably arguments why it's a bad mentality. But I just said, okay, I'm going to try to make everything people ask for happen. And that kind of was a big differentiator for us. And it's not that we beat out all of our competition because there's a few companies that are all kind of neck and neck, you know, driving forward as the market grows. You know, we're not too vicious at each other because the market's growing so fast. But we, we definitely beat out a lot of other players that were not willing to change their mentality. You know, people that would tell customers, like make fun of customers for not knowing where the Leaning Tower of Pisa is. And it's like, you know, I don't know where my appendix is in my body. You know, there's always someone else that can teach us something that we don't know, and that's okay. You know, we shouldn't make people feel bad for that or guilty for not knowing. So we just kind of remained always positive and literally just ask customers what they wanted and provide that service in return and just reduce friction points. So the meeting points easy to find. There's lots of people wearing branded uniforms, you know, with big signs so you can find it. You know, the tour guides are branded or companies so people know that they're getting the product they purchased and it's easy to find. You get you in fast. We cut out all the BS and just get people what they want in the way they want it. And we found that if we created enough products that gave you what they wanted, that we would, that we, we would continue to grow. And that's, that's been working for us so far. 
I read that you saw Skip the Line and thought, yeah, that's great, but let's go another level here and let's offer tours with some exclusive access. Yeah. So skip the line is like a barrier to entry. It's just permission to play. Like you have to skip the line. Like I don't even, we actually didn't even promote skip the line or website for so long. Cause we just thought it was an assumed thing that you would skip the line. And then we're like, oh, maybe we got to put it on there. Like Wayfair reinforces that everything ships free, like everywhere. It's everything ships free, but that's their barrier to entry. That's just like minimum. You know, they, what they, what they provide is great prices on furniture. Now us, we skip the line on everything. That's the minimum barrier to entry. If there is a line and it's able to be skipped, we will skip it. And if it's not able to be skipped, we will find a way to skip it eventually. You know what I mean? Or at least get through it faster than other people. So our like, you know, better pricing was to go to exclusive places and access to places. So we are our constant goal is to talk to museums and attractions, private or public, and see if there's a way for us to visit or see places that you just can't see on your own. Because if I can't sell you something you can do on your own. Like that's just not an option. I have to sell something that you cannot replicate. And then if you do that, you will grow. Wow. Can you give uh, our listeners an example of an exclusive access that you offer? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. our most popular is the Coliseum Underground. That's a huge, crazy selling tour. Everyone in the industry would talk about it. It's insane. You know, the demand on that is so big. But we also have a, a great tour called the Vatican Gold Tour. Uh, we call it gold because it's like the, the premier product, you know, like the credit card levels, you know. So all the tour operators are anti- are able to enter the Vatican museums at eight o'clock if they have an account. So we work with the Vatican. We're one of like four or five tour operators that can enter at 7.30. So it's only 30 minutes earlier. The crowds get in at nine. The tour operators get in eight, which are now like a massive crowd of, of companies. And we get in at 7.30. You know, so it allows us to skip ahead of everyone else and get in there. But then on top of that, we're like, okay, that's cool, but it's it's not enough. So we also are able to go to like Areas you just can't visit. Like there's one area called the Gabinete de la, de la Mascara, which is like the cabinet of the masks in the Vatican. It's really cool. So like you're in the group and all of a sudden the tour guide's like, oh, come with me. And a Vatican guard comes out in like wow. a uniform and he unlocks a door and you go through and like other people try to get in with you. And the, the guy's like, no, no, just this group. You know, and the guy's like wow. waving the flag. Yeah, it's cool, you know. And then we have access to go to the Vatican at night when it's closed. I've done so many of those tours. It's, it's really cool to do. You know, and, and that's like the major, more popular ways to do things, Yeah, to, to go to places you can't go to on your own. But we also, me and my business partner realized, because we would travel to Europe all the time. We were like, not buddies at first, but like we, we were. And we would go go check things out. And like, we'd find ways to go to like a, a vineyard in Montalcino. But like, we'd be somehow meeting with like the owners of the vineyard and hanging out and drinking wine with them. And then they invited us to dinner afterwards. And we get dinner and it'd be really fun. And we always think like, do you think other people can do this stuff? And we basically came to the conclusion that majority no. They can't yeah. do this stuff. They can't find this out. And we were like, well, how can we make this a product? So the Vatican Museums, that tour is one thing where we have to like fashion out an agreement with them to make that happen so that we're allowed to do it. But there's lots of other things that like, you know, a lot of companies are focusing on and we are definitely focused on. It's just getting people a local experience they can't replicate on their own, even if it's just going to someone's house that owns a vineyard and eating dinner with them and having a really cool exclusive you know, experience. And we, we do tons of stuff like that too now, which is really important for product. Like you can't sell water out of the lake. You know what I mean? You have to make it something different that people want to have. I guess the question I have is I understand, you know, building the relationship with someone who owns a vineyard, for instance, is going to be a lot easier than dealing with the Vatican. Cause I imagine they're quite bureaucratic and, and everything else. 
Also, so there's two questions here. First of all, what tips do you have in terms of when you negotiate with the Vatican to get this exclusive access? Let, let's start with that, that one. Well, uh, I probably won't release information. What I will say is that okay. working with the Vatican is actually awesome. I love working with the Vatican. They're really incredible because they just kind of, they think like me. They think, you know, they're, they're actually, first of all, the Vatican are actually really good people. Everyone has like this terrible thing. It's the Vatican. Vatican sucks, blah, blah. But the problem is that there are bad things that happen inside the Catholic Church, obviously, but that's like a, a small, less than 1% that's smeared across the entire thing they're doing. But like the Vatican does so much charity work all across the globe. And I just, I like working with them for that reason because I feel like, you know, although we're not directly contributing, we are contributing to something that's trying to make the world a better place. Whether that's through a charged agenda or not, I don't know, but they're definitely doing that. You know, if they're trying to get people to adopt Christianity by doing this, I'm okay with it because they're really doing good. Um, but, you know, I, as for like, helping people negotiate the Vatican. Uh, I can't really give too many tips. We just try to distribute a really good product. And that was eventually noticed. Yeah. So I guess my next question then is, so your competitors see you offering this, aren't they trying to muscle in and get that deal as well? The main competitors are giving that product. I'm okay with the ones that are doing a good product that have the same product as me because it's an end unit, an end goal that's good for the customer. And that's what I'm really in it for. Like I would like to get all the customers personally. But as long as the customer is getting a good end product, I'm pretty happy. And the Vatican is, is really honed in on that. I mean, they will call you out if they see something happening they don't want to happen and they think it's bad for the end user. So I don't want everyone to have the same product as me. And if they all do, the Vatican is going to give us something new. What can you do with your reservation software? Take online bookings and payment, manage your inventory, automate processes, and view reports and insights? Yeah, of course. But can you also send digital waivers, build a stunning website, and get help around the clock? What about optimize your booking channels, diversify your distribution, use your favorite tools, and choose your pricing model? With Checkfront, you can. One booking platform, limitless possibilities. Find out more at Checkfront.com. I'm curious to learn a little, little bit more about your, your digital campaigns and your distribution mix. So the tour guide today, what does your distribution mix look like? So we are majority direct consumer. We work with OTAs, obviously. We have large accounts with companies like Viator. Uh, we like to have large accounts with other companies, but some are a little uh, different to, to work with, you know, a little, little frustrating to work with. But, you know, we have large accounts like Viator, Headout. These are awesome companies, I think, personally. I'm, like, communicating directly with, you know, high people Viator. I'm communicating directly with the C-suite at Headout. These are fantastic companies. I really, really like them. There's other, another awesome company that distributes our product in Italy called Tick Italy. I'm working with this guy, Cristiano, for forever. These are great people. Love working with them. Uh, we do distribute majority direct-to-consumer. Fantastic. Vast majority direct-to-consumer. I can't give out exact numbers. But oh, sure. That has always been our goal. I don't know if it's the best way to do things because a lot of other companies or one other company distributes majority through OTAs and through resellers and they're doing very well. But we found our strategy to be helpful. It makes us profitable and it makes our customers get the best product for the best price, in my personal opinion. Well, I know most of our listeners will be green with envy because most of our listeners would want that direct business rather than there's a lot going on with OTAs right now and third yeah. parties. So what are some of the ways that you've employed in order to get direct business? Uh, so I think that simple content, like everyone's always like, how do you figure out SEO? And I was like, well, you could just read Google's mission statement. It's to organize the world's content and make it easily accessible. Start by doing that and you will get picked up. You know, I've always had this simple approach on things. And I, I, I thought like early on, people always try to hide how you can buy tickets for the Coliseum and make that like part of their value proposition. And I thought like, 
That's a terrible value proposition. I would always tell people, if you want to buy tickets on your own, that's the best way to do it. You probably wait in line like 15 or 20 minutes, but a tour is really good. Our value prop is a tour, not skipping the line. We will skip the line, but the value prop is the information you'll get with our, with our tour guide. I want to make sure our product is transparent. So early on, I started giving really good content to people in the form of blogs and mostly in the form of video content that just literally gave away all the secrets. This is how you can do this on your own. This is how you can do that on your own. And if you don't want to do it on your own, we do it really well. You can buy our tour. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And I will link to that in the show notes today to your, to your you. YouTube channel. Yeah. YouTube's been awesome. That. It's been awesome. Yeah. I'm so proud of the growth there. Like we're so like, we don't have like, you know, Instagram model subscribers, you know, we're not like at like a million or something like that, but you have to think about like, if you're a commercial product and you have as many subscribers as we have, it's a really big thing. I mean, we have 35,000 subscribers at this point, And hopefully by the time someone listens to the show, we'll have a hundred thousand or whatever, mm. not, but we have more than TripAdvisor. You know, these are commercial channels. These are companies that back a product and people don't trust companies, but they trust our channel and they trust our company because the content we give them is not like buy our tour, buy our tour. Obviously we plug our tours, you know, but we tell people really good advice on how to travel to cities. And that's and the advice we give is stuff that I would do personally. It's not, yes. I, I'm never swayed by my team being like, let's do like a top 10. And I'm like, no, forget that. I wouldn't visit 10 things. I'm going to visit like two things when I go to a city. And we're really true to that. Yeah. Uh, obviously we have created a top 10 tours and things like that before, but like, you know, for the most part with, with advice, it's what we would do ourselves. So we just give really clean and clear content. We make it pragmatic. Like we have a marketing mission statement that helps us craft our content. And that's to create pragmatic and actionable content that's relevant to our end users. So it's simple content, pragmatic. It's, it's actionable. So it's not like you should go inside the Louvre. It's here's how to go inside the Louvre. Here's the opening hours. Here's how you purchase your tickets. And here's what you want to see once you get inside. And then it's relevant to our end users. So it's geared to the people that watch our videos and purchase our products. Fantastic. I know that Rob Patingalo over at Trip Hacks in DC, he does something where his YouTube channel, he doesn't really talk about his tour so much. It's more like what you should pack to wear if you come to DC in November. Totally. And totally. how to get around the city with public transport. And, you know, he's he's mentioning, obviously, that he offers uh, tours, but it's not kind of in your face, you know, by our stuff. Yeah, you can't you can't shovel your agenda in any, yeah. any way, shape, or form. I mean, it, I, I was told early on by a very smart man that the best way to get people to be interested in you is to ask them questions about them. True. So what we do is we try to communicate to our customers things they want to know from questions we've asked and then wait for them to come and look for us. It's a long build. It's not going to happen right away. You can definitely have some better marketing campaign if you're a huge company that will acquire more customers. But we've been weathering the storm and it's now really paying off for us. Fantastic. What's your viewpoint on Get Your Guide Originals? I mean, I, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Get Your Guide. I like to be a big fan of Get Your Guide, but we have a lot of troubles working with them. Uh, they're very protective over their products, which is a good thing, obviously. Um, I don't want to say that like I don't like them or like their originals. Obviously, they're more successful than me as a company. So I'm very um, I'm very impressed with what they've done. Their originals seem cool. They're not running them. They're using white labels. You know, other companies, tour companies run those. I think it's a good idea for a business standpoint. I think it's something that I would do in their shoes. So I, I think that it's a good decision if that's what you're asking. Do I, I like working with Get Your Guide as much? I would like to work with them better, but we currently don't have a great relationship with them. It's kind of like a... Uh, a strange subject with Get Your Guide because, you know, we, we don't really understand why they make decisions, but they seem to be doing really well. So I can't really put too much judgment on, on the decisions they make. And, and I ask you this because at Arrival Berlin last year, I remember Tao Tao, the COO, was on the stage, asked me anything. And, and Douglas put up a screenshot, which was quite brave of Douglas, actually. And it was, I think it was actually Coliseum Tours 
And the first tour was Get You Guide original tour, which I think, let's say, for instance, had a thousand reviews. But the one was second had like 5,000 reviews. And that wasn't a Get Your Guide original. So Douglas's point is, well, you're promoting something that isn't as well-reviewed and as well-liked to promote your own thing. And of course, the goal there is that eventually I expect Get Your Guide originals because they, they do vet them and they have you know criteria that those companies have to meet. But I just wonder for you, because you're in the thick of that. Right? You're in that battle for, for bookers and then you're having to compete with an OTA who's also a tour operator. Yeah. I don't really get jealous uh, very often. And I, I appreciate other people's abilities to make decisions. Like like I said, if I don't have a good work relationship, guys, one thing, but they're really successful. So I can't really criticize them as a company. I can only talk about my point of view. But I, I would do the same thing. And I guess in their point of view, and I could see that meeting and I could hear the conversation. You know, I could imagine the conversation is like, listen, we have such high customer service standards that our product will be the best. So let's yeah. just put it there from the beginning. You know, I, I don't really judge that. You know, I think that's okay. That's a very mature approach, I have to say. Yeah, very level headed on that. I've never been jealous of the teacher because they know information that I don't know right now. I've always just want to learn that information and make decisions based on that information. And I think that, you know, get your guides started around the same time as us. They're bigger than us. So what am I going to say about what they do, you know? And how about a booking engine? Um, who are you working with to take your bookings online? Uh, we don't use a booking engine. We have our own, own proprietary software. Wow. How did that come about? You know, we've worked with a couple of booking engines in the past uh, one in the past, and they were really good, and they were good people, and they were cool. I won't name which one, and you know nothing bad happened. There's no like you know dragging through the dirt type situation. We just were we passed like a certain revenue point, and it wasn't going to work for us. I wanted to scale. I wanted to do more things. I honestly think it's crazy that large companies would use booking engines. It's like for me, it's like what are you doing? We have a CTO, we have multiple developers, we have like tons of people that write code, and we produce all our proprietary because. I'm not going to lean on anyone else for my timelines. When I want to do a webhook and connect on an API with another company, I'm just going to do that like that. We're working with, a, trying to partner with other companies in the industry, and they're all with these, you know, booking engines. And it's like, come on, can't we just connect directly and then make this happen? And they can't, you know. But if you look at the largest companies in the industry, we all have our own proprietary software. So yeah, I was chatting with uh, Stephen Otto recently. I'm sure you know at Walks, and they have their own booking. Yeah, That's we were roommates in Rome for like a year at one point. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. So I should have come to you when I was doing my research to chat to Stephen then. You could have given me some good stories. Yeah, we, we had a fun time together. It was good. Yeah, sure. While we have our own proprietary software, we are always looking for great plugins to lean on. You know, there's lots of awesome technology that we do not try to build on our own that we plug in to our, our proprietary software. I mean, there's like Active Campaign, there's, uh, you know, there a ton of different little plugins you can fit into your proprietary software that can make your system run better. So we do, you know, there's not commerce, which offers great like CRM platform that you can get a CTO or a technologist to, to edit to become your thing. Uh, we do do definitely rely on things out there, but we, we have our own. So. Right. I also wanted to ask you about your website and I'm, I'm going to let you in on something here. We're launching a new feature, a uh, new series on Torpreneur. It's a website tune up for tour operators and I'm working with a a website expert and you know we're having people suggest their own site the site and go into a hot seat to get you know constructive feedback we're also kind of picking up sites that we see that we feel are either like superb or could use some love and i have to say your website at the tour guy is phenomenal thank you um, thanks so much phenomenal. yeah we put a ton of work into it yeah i love how probably one of the best about pages i've seen and they're quite difficult to craft could you share with us a little bit how your website is where it is today from where it started. 
we, me and my business partner, we built our first website. It was like, I think we paid like 1500 bucks. We had like an external dude, just do it. You know what I mean? And I remember afterwards and I was like, now we got that done. Never got to pay for that again. (laughs) (laughs) It is such a massive expense. People are like, yeah, you just pay for a website and put it up. No, we're e-commerce. You know, it is a rolling expense in the seven figures every year to maintain a website without a doubt. And if people are paying less, I, you know, they need to work on that because it's, you just put a ton of effort into it. Like the pages, like the about us page, those are the easy ones. Cause you can, it's a static page, the content, it will change. Like we're working on a new one actually now. And I appreciate your, your uh, love for my current one, but that, that is a static page that you will change every two to three years. Uh, it's the e-commerce pages that really take a lot of work. I mean, we're doing nonstop AB testing. So if you go on a, a category page, which has all of our products on it and refresh it, in, or put in like an incognito window in Google, you will get a completely different page wow. the second time you do it. Um, and that's always happening. Our homepage, we're changing the text, A-B testing on everything. Uh, you need to do a ton of work on it because you just have to find what converts best, which customers want the most, what speaks to them. We do also a ton of work on cohort analysis, which is like when you put customers into a segment and name them a person. So we have like different age groups, male, female, uh, where they come from, things like that. And then you just, you kind of cultivate the text to speak to that person in, in certain products they're most likely to purchase. And it's just a ton of work, you know, but the end, end result is getting people the product they want that makes them feel comfortable to complete a purchase. And then when they get there, they're happy. It's a true and honest road that gets them the place they want to go. And, uh, you know, our reviews kind of backed up. And I did want to share something that although you are called the tour guy, when I looked at your About Us page with your team, you were predominantly female, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I made the name because I, I didn't really carry business cards. I could never remember to do them. And the Roman guy just seemed really memorable. Uh, there was like there was a guy in, in Florida called the Traffic Ticket Guy that would solve all my traffic tickets because I got a lot of them. Uh, and I just thought his name was so cool. So I was like, I'll do the Roman guy. And it was just me. I never planned for it to be a big business or you know, yeah. a small to medium-sized business. So I never planned for that to happen. I was just going to be me giving tours in Rome for the rest of my life. That's what I really wanted to do. And it was, it was a, a beautiful dream. Uh, but now we kind of expanded. But like, yeah, we, we obviously have an open, you know, our workplace is you know, not predominantly male. Some of my favorite people that I've worked with from all time are female. And they changed their title to the tour gal. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and we're cool with that. It's awesome, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. I just wanted to make that point. Did you know every weekday Shane curates the most interesting news articles in tours and activities and sends them out in a snappy daily digest? Grab your copy of the Tourpreneur Daily Briefing at www.tourpreneur.com. I wanted to move on to our speed round. So what is a habit, trait, or characteristic you believe contributes to your success? Okay, so I have it literally on my wall, so I got to read it. So we are repeatedly do. So excellence is not an act, but a habit. It's Aristotle, obviously. So I try to craft out parameters upon which I do things and do things based on those parameters as often as possible, if that makes sense. So I'm really big on processes and controlling how information moves through a process. Absolutely. No, I completely agree, especially around that habit. A more action one might be just like uh, just read books all the time, nonstop. On a constant yeah. basis. I can't read because I'm dyslexic, so I listen to audiobooks, but it's like all the time. Like other people at the gym are working out, listening to like Radiohead. I'm just listening to some like uh, some business book. What's your favorite business book? Oof. Okay, so if we're talking about like favorite, there's so many things to pick from, but like there's the first book that was most important to me is this one called The Advantage by Patrick Lencioni. It's about 
uh, you might pronounce it different if you speak it in like American or British English, but in Italian it's lencioni. And um, it's about creating and crafting your core values and your value system upon which you make decisions. These are like laws that you can't break. And uh, that book was really influential in my turn, my pivot from being a tour guide to being a business owner and operator. I, I'm smiling here because I also read that book. And when I read it, at the time I was regional director for Get Your Guide in the Americas. And I got all my senior managers in and we all read that book and we all worked through that book because I awesome. agree, that's a game changer. I hope I'm not offending you to Get Your Guide stuff. I didn't know you were part of the crew, you know? No, no, no. That was ancient history. That was two years ago. I, I've been out of there for two years. No, no, no. Yeah, I kind of respect what they've done. I just, you know. No, 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 no. No, please. It, you're authentic. I love that. There's, there's no need to, to apologize at all. Um, and you, you were talking about your dyslexia, do you view that as a strength or a weakness? It totally is a strength. I mean, it sucked growing up. I mean, being dyslexic, because I didn't know about it until I was 23 or 24. So I went through all of my schooling just thinking I was dumb, uh, which was hard to deal with, obviously. And you do other things to compensate for that, like, you know, act out or do comedy in school and like make jokes. But it sucked in school. It was the worst thing ever. I, I, everyone looks back at school and they're like, man, high school is great. I'm like, what are you crazy? That sucked. But then afterwards, uh, the great analogy I've, I've recently read was, imagine you're swimming a race against a bunch of other people and they replace your water in your lane with honey, okay? Like miele, honey from the, the bees. And everyone jumps in and you're swimming as hard as you can and you get to the other side and everyone's out dried off raising metals and you're like coming out dripping in honey and you're just confused. Nobody notices that you're swimming in honey and the worst part is you don't know you're swimming in honey because you've never swam in water. So thing is though, if you got out of that pool one day after like race at the race and practice after practice and honey and swam in water, you would definitely be the fastest, the best. So yeah. when you leave school after like working out, they say reading is six times harder for dyslexics than regular people. I have double deficit dyslexia, which means it's 12 times harder for me. Wow. So once you get to an audiobook, after trying to read your whole life, you're like a pro. I mean, I read like 70 to 100 books a year, just listening through them, audio all the time. It's just constant inflow of information. So after you work out in that honey, when you get in the water, you crush it. And it also gives you a contrarian view on things because you, you know you can't swim faster than people. So you have to figure out another way to get to the finish line every single time. So other people are like, how can we sell more tours in front of the Coliseum? And I'm thinking, how can we sell more tours online? Yeah, strength. Oh, that, that's pretty inspirational to hear that. I mean, you, people talk about dyslexic entrepreneurs. It's like Richard Branson, Sarah Blakely. She's incredible. You know, a ton of Paul Orfalia. There's, uh, he's Kinko's, uh, the guy who invented Ikea. You know, he was, just like, he was like, why are you breaking down furniture? Or why do you ship furniture put together? Just break it down. It's cheaper. All dyslexics. Yeah, incredible. Incredible. What is one question that you ask or a trait that you look for during the interview process when hiring tour guides? I have a lot of funny questions I ask where people are like, whoa. So with managers, I often ask if like people always like, can I get your reference? And looking for like a boss, I'm like, let me get a reference, a person that's worked for you. And I ask them, I, I, at first I ask people like, if you could hire one person today that's worked for you in the past to work at this company, who would it be? And they'd be like, John Jones. And I'd be like, can I have his phone number? And they'll be like, yeah, okay. So that's a question I often ask. Instead of looking for the manager, I'm looking for the report because the report would tell the story for a manager. And another one I ask is, um, what was the hardest thing you've ever done in your life? Because I, I just, honestly, and this is a terrible thing, I know it's a bad thing, I have almost no respect for people that have easy lives. And we all have dyslexia and we all have you know, homelessness at some point and we all have some crap that happened. I just want to make sure I find the people that had the hardest crap and that are now at my desk. Okay. What is your biggest challenge in your business today or what keeps you awake at night currently? 
So scaling is really hard. Another great book is by Reid Hoffman. It's called Blitzscaling. It's one of my favorite books read today. There's also another great one for people that are just becoming CEO of a company. Like, you know, I wasn't always CEO. We were just a business. And then eventually we were an executive business. And it's called High Growth Handbook by Elad Gill. Also, an, one I almost cried when reading this book. But Blitzscaling is amazing. It talks about the challenges with becoming a new company every three to nine months. And that's what happens when you're doubling and tripling in revenue per year. So the biggest problem with me is keeping up with our growth personally to make sure that I am the person to run the company and that I'm qualified to run the company and I have all the skill sets. And my most recent and most difficult thing is just human resource planning and being the person that all people inside the company need me to be. And, and that's always tough. It's just basically being that human resource person for the people inside your company to be, because it gets so big and diverse and there's people with different wants and needs. And it's just, that is a, that is a big challenge for any company. It's like, you know, you never really get great reviews on Glassdoor when people leave your company. You know, when you're the owner or the CEO, it's very rare unless you're just like marketing to all the people that currently work at your company. Please leave me a review on Glassdoor now before you quit or get fired yeah, or, or whatever yeah. it is. You know, it's like, it's really, really tough to be the thing everything needs to be and also make the right business decisions. Like sure. I, Patty McCord has this awesome line and she says basically like she was getting asked like how many kegs in, a, in, in your office to make people happy. And she's like, you don't want to make people happy. People are happy or they're not happy. You just want to make a possibility for the happy people to stay happy. To stay happy. Yeah, that's smart advice. Finally, what is one piece of technology you've adopted? And that could be an app or a tool that has had the biggest impact on your business or on your personal productivity. Google, Google Business Suite is a phenomenal tool. I mean, I love Google. People hate them because all this stuff and whatever not. And I say, you know, come on, they're business. That's what they do. Uh, I think that Google Business Suite is incredible, like Google Docs, Google Sheets. I have this aspirational value in my company, which is called Streamline Work Processes, where we want to be able to like pass jobs and tasks off without actually having to communicate between departments. We want to inspire communication, obviously, but we also want things just to be well documented so you can jump into a project in case I get hit by a bus when I walk out of my house, yeah. you know? Yeah. So you can just jump right in and, and take off where I left off. And Google makes that possible because you have like unlimited backlinking into different like, you know, sentences or lines to give support and document and point of reference documents. Google Business Suite is incredible. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for your time today. I have a ton more questions here that we didn't even get to. So I hope on a future uh, episode of the show, you would be open to coming back on and tackling some of these other questions. I have. Yeah, I would love to get more into, you know, other business advice, because it's just such like we talk about a lot of the tour guide part and the, the business part is so much more difficult. It's really been a, you know, a constant challenge and, and journey. Whenever you're looking to get some more time, I'm, I'm happy in Berlin or, you know, another time online. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm going to be introducing more roundtables this year. So imagine you and Steve Otto and, and someone else chatting away for an hour about business. Love that. Phenomenal. Yeah. Great. Sean, thanks a million for coming on the show today. That's Sean Finelli at tourguy.com. Are you active on social media? I personally am not. You guys can track my progress as reported by my team at, at the tour guy for a social media handle at the tour guy. We're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, we're on everything, just the tour guy. Brilliant. And I will add that to the show notes at tourpreneur.com forward slash 63. Thank you very much, Sean. Thanks, Shane. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Torpreneur podcast. Be sure to visit torpreneur.com to join the conversation and access the show notes, including links to the resources mentioned on today's episode. This is Torpreneur.